it would have been a whole lot easier if Father Stephen was still living here. But he, uh, he's taken up the challenge to come here for the next three evenings. So, um, what to say? I mean, I could go through Father's curriculum, but I think I'll just introduce him as a friend and a legionary of Christ. Someone who spent a lot of time uh, preparing himself to help uh, direct retreats. So uh, I guess we could say he's a direct uh, a, 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 a retreat director. He does a lot of that. Along with retreats comes a lot of individual uh, spiritual direction, helping people not just here in Raleigh but really across the country. Uh, these modern means of communication make that a little bit easier to do that. Uh, born in Cleveland uh, and... And has been in the Legion a good long time. So he's been a priest. How many years a priest, Father? 16 years. So I think we're in really good hands. Uh, Father will know exactly what he wants to uh, his own personal goals in these uh, talks that he will give. And I'm sure that each one of us will walk away with something very concrete to do over these uh, ye- uh, weeks of Lent such that we arrive to Holy Thursday well prepared to live the, the beautiful liturgy that, that the church offers us. So we're at the beginning stages of Lent. I just encourage you to take these uh, thoughts and reflections the Father will give and, and not just see them, you know, like keep them in your head. Like really try to bring them down to your heart and then into your hands so that as you go out into this beautiful world in which we live, you are going to make a difference just by the way you are. So anyway, Father Stephen, thanks for taking the trek up here to Raleigh. And uh, I leave these beautiful people in your hands. Thank you, Father Peter. So I'm going to test a little bit to see if you can still hear me like this. You can still hear? Good. So we're going to start with a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Here with Jesus present and exposed on the altar. Lord Jesus, we come to you this evening in great faith. Some of us come with greater faith than mine. Some of us come with weak faith. But no matter where our faith is, we ask you to increase it. You told us that all we need is a mustard seed size of faith. And that you would work great miracles through us. The greatest of all the miracles is our conversion Please help us this evening as we begin this Lenten mission to live these three days and the entire days of Lent with an open heart, an open mind, so that your grace can penetrate and renew us and increase our faith no matter where it is, so that we leave these evenings, these days of prayer and fasting and penance and preparation for Easter um, stronger in faith and more truly grounded in your loving word for us. We ask you this evening as well to send the Holy Spirit upon all of us to open our minds and hearts to your grace. We ask you to help us hear you as we are, as I am speaking. Give me words, Lord, that your people need to hear. Prepare us to receive the word you have prepared for us. Remove from us any kind of obstacle, any kind of resistance, any kind of fear, any kind of hard heartedness that prevents the seed that is powerful to take deep root. 
We also ask that you strengthen our wills so that as we receive your word, we may be emboldened by it. And when you choose to reveal your holy will in great faith and trust in you, let us embrace it. We commend all of this, these evenings of prayer also to Our Lady, your mother. And we ask through her mother, motherly intercession, through her spousal intercession as spouse of the Holy Spirit as well, that she teach us to hear you, to recognize your voice, and to pray, and to make our heartfelt prayers beautiful to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would also invite you for the presentation. I know some of you are in line for confession, but those who aren't, um, to come to the middle or come over here, and it'll just be a little easier on me instead of going like this. It's good exercise, and it's also distracting. So if you wish to come to the middle here and be a little closer, that would be helpful. Um, Father Peter alluded a little bit to, as he, in his very gracious introduction, alluded to something that will, you could say in a nutshell, in a nutshell, um, you could say, summarize the goal, at least from this point of view. Let's see what God's goal is, but from our point of view, we're looking for the grace of living a Lent as a disciple of Jesus. There's always more to learn about God. There's always uh, more of God to give of himself to us. And he can continually expand our hearts, right, our minds beyond their natural capacities to receive more of him. So in a nutshell, the simple grace we're asking for in this mission is to live a Lent as as a, a true disciple of Jesus. So we'll have three evenings of um, presentation. I'll speak for a little while, about 40 minutes, a little bit. Then I have a second microphone here for any questions that you'd like to ask um, at the end of each presentation. This evening will be the intro, and we'll talk about um, a disciple, who is a disciple, what is a disciple, and a disciple's mission. So the first presentation we could call Mission. And Jesus, when he was walking the earth, more than once, he encouraged, he exhorted his followers, his students, his disciples, um, and others, to open their minds and hearts, open their ears, to read the signs of the times. Um, You think of Mark 8, uh, verse 1 to 10, or Matthew 16, verse 3, um, sometimes even admonish. You can tell, forecast the weather... How could you not read the signs? Read the signs. If we look at what Jesus or the Spirit said in Revelation 3.22, whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're called as Christians uh, to read the signs of the times and understand them. Uh, Vatican, uh, Gaudium et Spes in Vatican II, number four says, to carry out such a task... The church has always had the duty of scrutinizing the signs of the times and of interpreting them in the light of the gospel. Thus, in language intelligible to each generation, she can respond to the perennial questions which men ask about this present life and the life to come. 
and about the relationship of the one to the other. We must, therefore, recognize and understand the world in which we live, its explanations, its longings, and its often dramatic characteristics. Some of the main features of this modern world can be sketched as follows. And then there's a description of the state of things, the state of the world, um, that follows. So if we take a step back, very briefly, in one sense, how could we kind of characterize the signs of the times? In positive, it's positive signs. In our generation, since the council, um, we see a greater emphasis on the laity participating in the life of the church, active participation in the liturgy, a mobilization of the laity. We see a greater access among Catholics, not perfect, but at least a growth among Catholics in interest in and study of uh, Scripture, Holy Scripture. It's not just reserved to Sunday Mass. Um, we see a fervor for evangelization. We see a great growth in understanding of the human dignity, the human person. For example, um, theology of the body. There are families now raising their children who were raised themselves with theology of the body. That's something new. And certainly, how can you not say proper for the times? It's like the Holy Spirit really knew what he was doing back in, what, the 30s and the 40s when John Paul or Carol Wojtyla was just beginning to teach what we now call theology of the body. Who knew? Holy Spirit knew. Um, but if we also open our eyes even just a little bit, and even just with a little bit of blurry vision, and maybe with one eye closed, we can see there are many things that, in a negative way, describe the signs of the times. The rapid decline of Christianity in the West. Uh, number, uh, the growing number of baptized to no longer practice. Um, a growing number of baptized to no longer baptize their own children. Um, the greatest denomination, you could say, a group in at least North America or in the West in general, that's increasing is the, non, the nuns. How are you affiliated? Nothing. It's growing. Benedict XVI says, In our days, in vast areas of the world, the faith is in danger of dying out like a flame that no longer has fuel. God is disappearing from the human horizon. And with the dimming of the light that comes from God, humanity is losing its bearings with increasingly evident destructive effects. One of the signs is apostasy. Those who were once practicing or at least professed to be a Christian are now not just indifferent but um, practical atheists against uh, God. Many baptized leaving the practice of the faith and saying they are against what they once professed. More recent signs. Pope Francis articulates this. The church as a field hospital. It's like the culture of death produces walking dead. You know, all around us. Wounded, brokenness everywhere. Um, and to degrees that maybe we never thought of even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, hence, the, uh, the current Holy Father's emphasis on going out, going out to the wounded, going out to the peripheries. Um, you can see even from John the 23rd, who called the council, up until our day with our Holy Father, uh, the Spirit speaking through the successors of Peter about a new springtime, 
in the church. About a new springtime that is coming. Well, what does that mean? That means we've been in a winter for a while if this, there's such an emphasis on the new springtime. Maybe we were even in a winter without realizing it. But that has been consistent with all the successors of Peter, especially beginning with John the 23rd. But it becomes more intense, the urgency and the calling and the proclamation of a new springtime is coming. Um, for a few centuries, at least maybe, uh, the church seemed uh, to persevere in her externals of devotions and practices and institutions. But even now, there is like this shocking and dramatic lack of consensus of those practicing the externals on what the basic moral truths of Christianity are. Like the inviolate dignity of the human person is male or female. Or you could say the attack on the institution of marriage. And what we would even, even say is a good thing or a right to be able to decide our own good and evil, etc., but it's in this, in this context that the church continues to call for what we're going to pray with in these three days, right? Discipleship. The church continues to call out disciples, discipleship, evangelize, disciples of Jesus. Jesus is calling for this new evangelization. Uh, on the 10th anniversary of the close of the council, Paul VI said in Evangelii Nunciandi, announcing the gospel, number 14, we wish to confirm once more that the task of evangelizing all people constitutes the essential mission of the church. The essential mission of the church is to evangelize all people. It is a task and mission which the vast and profound changes of present-day society make all the more urgent. Evangelizing is, in fact, the grace and vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. Evangelizing is the grace and vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize. What is that? It is to say to preach and to teach, to be the channel of the gift of grace to reconcile sinners with God and to perpetuate Christ's sacrifice in the Mass, which is the memorial of his death and glorious resurrection. The Vicar of Christ saying the deepest identity of our mother church is discipleship, evangelization. And then John Paul II in 1990, his fr- no, it wasn't his first, yeah, he was Pope in the 70s, so it wasn't his first encyclical. Redemptoris um, Missio in 1990, number three, said, he said, God is opening before the church the horizons of a humanity more fully prepared for the sowing of the gospel. He says, I sense that the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to a new evangelization and to the mission to the nations. All of the church's energies. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid the supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all peoples. 
um, I grew up in my generation or my family that there was an assumption that the Catholic schools, this is the Catholic school's job. I work hard to send my children to a Catholic school. It's the teachers and the sisters and, and all that and the priests. Your job is to teach my child the faith. That's why I pay you. <laughs> John Paul II is saying every believer. So what is this new evangelization? It is not a membership drive. It's not petitioning people to join a club. It's not even to get people to fill the pews. Filling pews with unconverted people doesn't do a lot of good. It would accomplish little, if anything. What is the new evangelization? The new evangelization is new in a couple aspects. It's new in who. Who does it? It's very clearly no longer reserved to the clergy or to religious. But every baptized person. It's new into whom the message is addressed. No longer to the outlying areas of the planet who have not heard of Jesus. It is also our own culture. Within cultures that have been already evangelized or have received centuries ago the word of God. It is different in ardor, in method, and expression. In ardor. To rekindle the apostolic zeal, the drive, the enthusiasm, the power, the energy that fired and drove the very first evangelizers, the very first apostles, the very first Christians, the very first disciples and students of Jesus, especially after Pentecost. There was a qualitative difference in those first Christians when they were obedient to God, to Jesus They waited in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. When he came, their proclamation and their teaching, accompanied by signs and wonders, was, uh, you could say, a hundredfold more powerful than when they were actually doing it with Jesus. And he told them that. You will do greater things. It's different in ardor. The new evangelization has to recuperate the same zeal that God gave the disciples at Pentecost. It's different in method. New in method, not in content. The content doesn't change. But the method to deliver it has to adjust to where people are. Our society is different than our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. It's different. Um, It's not the same as always. It's new in expression. The expression to reach the hearts and minds of our our people today. Yes, that has to be new. The new evangelization isn't something that has died out with maybe um, after the Second Vatican Council or maybe after John Paul II, you know, who traveled the planet, really went around the world. He started World Youth Days. At the beginning, he was laughed at and discouraged. It won't work. It'll be a failure. It'll be an embarrassment to the church. Don't do that. Look what happened. And see the world react to a gathering of young people. And it seemed like he was such an attractive person that the 
definition of young really kind of became very flexible because everyone wanted to go. But in those great gatherings of, of thousands of people, sometimes millions of people, there was peace, there was harmony, there was joy. It wasn't like a rock concert where people were trashing things. It's continued. The call to discipleship, discipleship and the new evangelization continues to ring strongly through, um, through our mother, the church. And today, uh, Francis, Pope Francis, Evangelii Gaudium number 15, speaking in the context of the joy of the gospel, he says, what would, we, what would happen if we were to take these words seriously about proclaiming the gospel? We would realize that missionary outreach is paradigmatic for all the church's activity. Along these lines, he said, we cannot passively and calmly wait in our church's buildings. We need to move from a pastoral ministry of mere conservation to a decidedly missionary pastoral ministry. This task continues to be a source of immense joy for the church. And he quotes Jesus, who says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous who have no need. He says, The church is a community of missionary disciples in all its activities. The parish encourages and trains its members to be disciples. To be evangelizers. A pastoral ministry of mere conservation. To one of missionary activity. The church is a community of mission. Um, Parish forms and trains as disciples. So we have to ask ourselves. Is that happening? Is that happening where I live and worship? Um, I know you're preparing for Holy Week mission. Right? In Holy Week. Um, I hope you all know that. If you don't know that, um, now you know. <laughs> and ask Father Peter and, to tell you about it. But there have been meetings going on for about a year planning. And especially Holy, the Holy Triduum, there will be a mission aspect here. It's going to combine the prayerful aspect of the liturgies. And I know you're preparing for that. The couple leading it are from St. Mary Magdalene. And they're coming to help serve. Um, Eduardo and Cecilia, they're Marys of St. Mary Magdalene. Let us thank them. Let's learn from them. And then let's build from what you're starting this year uh, to next year to make it better. Um, I also know here that many of, the, of you or many parishioners don't live around this area physically. You come from other areas to this parish. Um, once I was a kind of missionary, you're right, you're traveling to come for some reason here. Um, there are many people who physically live in the walking distance from St. Joseph's who are cultural Catholics. And they don't come to Mass. They don't come here. It's just beginning to start. But our Lord has us here for a reason. The Lord has us in Southeast Raleigh for a reason. And our neighbors are here. And some of them know God a little bit. Some of them don't know, know anything about God. They don't have a relationship with Him. But we do, and we come here. Let's ask our Lord to help us. What I found very edifying is, Father Peter mentioned living here. We talk about it often 
um, among ourselves is you have a, a, I don't know how long it's been going on, but you have something that's so beautiful here. On Sundays, you notice that people were going to the first mass, um, the 9 a.m. mass. I'm looking at the sheets, but I can't remember if it was 9 or 9.30. 9 o'clock mass. Often after mass, hang around outside, and you're having picnics and get-togethers and fun and visiting. And sometimes the 11.30 crowd, and you mesh. That's so edifying. That's so beautiful. That's not just coming here to receive and then, and then go, and you're done. Praise the Lord. And let, let there be more of that. That is like a missionary aspect, a missionary heart, a heart of a disciple. How So, we can ask ourselves, how have we as a church responded to this call to discipleship over the last few years? Um, so, again, reading the signs of the times, indicators. So the Research Pew survey done a few years ago asked the question, is faith a high priority in different Christian denominations in your, in your institutions? So, in the conservative evangelical Christians... The answer to the question is faith a high priority? Is spreading the hate, faith a high priority in your group, in your congregation? For conservative evangelical Christians, 75% said yes. In African American congregations, it's 57% they said yes. And in Catholic parishioners, Catholic parishes, anyone want to throw out a guess? Nope, just uncomfortable giggling. <laughs> 6%. And then actually, if you ask the follow-up question, and what's it, ha- what's it happening in my parish? It drops down to three. So reading signs of times, right? Business as usual is no longer acceptable. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in calling and encouraging and building and sending different ways to renew hearts and enkindle love for God. But we cannot just sit around doing the same old, same old and think that things will be different. Becoming, so what's the problem? This is talk about the problems and offer no solution. No, we're not here just to complain, right? So if we believe too that the, the word of God is alive and active, in that Jesus perpetuates his love for us in the same sacrifice of the cross to the end of time, and that it doesn't end with the cross, but it is the entire Paschal mystery, including his resurrection, including his ascension, including Pentecost, that we have reason to look at what he did to teach and form his disciples, his students. Disciple means student who doesn't just learn what the teacher knows, I'm going to learn what he knows. It means I adopt the disciplines of the teacher's lifestyle, and I live as the teacher lives. So for a Catholic, for a Christian, discipleship is more than knowledge in, in my head of what he taught. It implies a change of my way of living. Why don't we look at what Jesus did and taught and how and why those first, actually several generations of disciples were so effective? I don't think that 
um, we're going to be able to be good disciples until we take a look at the first evangelization and see what our Lord says to us and speaks to us. How did they do it and what happened? So, Acts of the Apostles. It's like the blueprint for this discipleship program for evangelization. Acts 17, after Paul and Barnabas are preaching and teaching and working signs and wonders, there's a man named Jason that the Jews drag out. They get a hold of him. I think he was hosting Paul and some of Paul's disciples in his home. And they accuse him. Like, what is going on? You're creating such a commotion. Your people are preaching or saying that there's only one king, there's Jesus, and no one else can claim authority or deserves total loyalty than this Jesus. So it means that not the emperor, not the empire, not an institution, not another person, not an ideology, deserves or can demand total loyalty. And it was creating such a commotion. It was turning the world upside down. When Constantine legalized Christianity in the 300s, making Christianity safe, making it safe to practice the religion, they no longer had to hide, at least in theory, for their life as they were put to death. At his time, already a quarter of the empire was Christian. And not long after, almost half of the empire was Christian. The Acts of the Apostles tell us what they did and how they did it. The disciples of Jesus were different than other students of other teachers. They were noticeably different. In Antioch, they were first called Christians. And they were known for their love for each other. Look how they love each other. They had a joy that was different They cared for their sick when plagues happened and pandemics happened and disease came. And unlike the others, they did not close themselves up in their homes and refuse to go out. And unlike the others, they did not leave the cities. They stayed and they cared for the sick and they buried their dead and they honored the bodies. They were not like others who, with unwanted babies, exposed them. They did not treat women as as property. They treated women as persons. Even their poor were welcome into their religion. There was a mixture of all strata of society. And even the uneducated servants seemed to have a power to drive out demons and to cure the sick the other priests of the pagan religions could not do. The uneducated slave woman walking through the house could say, oh, in the name of Jesus, be gone, and it happened. The disciples of this Jesus were different than other disciples. And scripture contains for us this living source of formation, of launching, of, of discipleship. The living word of God. Scripture tells us how the disciples are supposed to live. And what their proclamation or the evangelization um, is supposed to be like. As Catholics, it's getting better. But we can still forget 
that scripture is the most fundamental normative source of life in the church. Scripture, the Holy Word, is the master document of the church. So I'm cradle Catholic. My parents are both Catholic. And a few years ago, um, my mother's father was dying. And so she was running back and forth to the hospital and taking care of him and under a lot of stress, as you can imagine. And driving, driving around, she was a little distracted and she had a fender bender. She hit the person in front of her. It wasn't bad, you know, but it was enough that they both had to stop and get out. And my mom is a really petite woman. She's all nervous, and she tells me that this big, big guy gets out of the car in front of her, and she's all nervous and scared. And he comes over to her, and she rolls down the window. She's trying to explain, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to. And my dad and has come back to the hospital, and then she bursts in tears. She just starts crying. So my mom says, the man reaches into the car, takes her hand, and holds her hand. And he goes, ma'am, um, let's pray. She goes, okay. It's like, oh, wow. And he goes, and he turned out to be a minister, a Protestant minister. And she, he goes, ma'am, do you read the Bible? And without missing a beat, my mom says, oh, no, I'm Catholic. <laughs> I said, mom, stop saying that. Come on. <laughs> Your son is a priest. <laughs> but it was just so automatic. You know, oh, no, I, I'm Catholic. I don't read the Bible. I remember a couple people I used to work with who are converts, two in particular. They told me... Um, As she, one, entered the church um, and convinced of the faith, absolutely convinced. But she said it was very difficult at the beginning to go to the new, her new church, her new parish. Because as she would speak to people, she wanted to speak to people about what Jesus told her in her prayer that morning. Or what she, Jesus was telling her as she was praying with the Bible in the evening. And she said, how many odd looks did I get from the Catholics? That made her think, well, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> what am I doing wrong? She said, this was the most normal thing. We would always talk about this in our church. Um, another woman I remember told me, again, a convert, um, very uh, involved in her former Protestant congregation. And again, convinced of the teaching of the Catholic faith, not regretting, uh, regretting anything and, uh, and learning and understanding, accepting the teachings of the church and all their depth and all the implications but she would say it took two years in her new parish for the Catholic, anyone to say, welcome, are you a new face here? Some of these people were criticized because as they spoke about Jesus, they said, you've got to tone it down, that's a little too Protestant. And I said, take that as a compliment. And the Protestants would be insulted, actually. It's, that's a compliment. Because your relationship with Jesus is real, and Jesus does speak to you through the living word of God that is meant for everybody. How many RCIA converts who go through the program and excited and are happy and are joyful in the reception to the church, after a while, begin to leave or not to come, not because of what happens here necessarily, but because no practicing Catholic invites him into the new Catholic culture. And they feel kind of out, outnumbered. Do we invite them to our homes? I don't know your name. I just knew you were baptized in the church or you just got confirmed. Come, let's get together. That's what the first disciples used to do. 
In Dei Verbum, number 21, Dei Verbum, so the dogmatic constitution of the church, the sacred scripture says, Therefore, like the Christian religion itself, all the preaching of the church must be nourished and regulated by sacred scripture. For in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children with great love and speaks with them. And the force and power of the word of God is so great that it stands as the support and energy of the church, the strength of faith for her children, the food of the soul, the pure and everlasting source of spiritual life. For the word of God is living and active, has power to build you up and to give you your heritage among all those who are sanctified. John Paul II in Ut Unum Sint, let the all be one, talking about Christian unity, ecumenism, said, Scripture is the highest authority in matters of faith. The magisterium is at the service of Scripture. And the authority of all the church, or the, what is the job of magisterium? It's to interpret Scripture in the light of the living tradition of God, of the church. As disciples of Jesus in this Lent, we really need to start with and remain in Scripture, in the living Word of God. Let's start there. What does our Lord say to me about being His disciple? What does our Lord say to me about this Lent? We're all on a journey of conversion, and the church provides this liturgical season for the ongoing conversion. We need conversion until we, we see our Lord in heaven, right, face to face. But why don't we ask him to say, what do you want of me this Lent? Instead of starting with our own ideas, our own programs. So what does scripture teach us about discipleship? I think the situation of the world today, reading the signs of the times, in one sense is very similar to the world that the first disciples were immersed in. What they encountered. They were thrust into a mostly pagan culture. Small small Jewish community compared to the rest of the world. A pagan culture. They were living in a time of a government that was very hostile to them. Would put them to death. Uh, Would take away their rights. Would scatter them. Um, Today, vast numbers, as we said at the beginning, vast numbers of our baptized are very ignorant about what, they, what the church teaches or what Christ teaches. They're ignorant. And in practice, they're, you know, atheists. In practice. In our country, really, if you look through a political lens, um, there is no longer a Catholic vote. There is none. We vote just like everybody else. Before you had to win the Catholic vote, at least it had some weight to it. No, it's pretty divided right down the middle. Does our faith inform our choices? For many, no, it does not.